We are in our series on Elijah, entitled Elijah, a Man Like Us. And I would encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. We've been moving along in this passage. Hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Elijah is just an amazing figure that appears on in the scene in the Old Testament. Uh, and today we're going to learn the verse from which this series is named from. It's from James chapter 5. It said, Elijah, with a, man, a man with a nature like ours, prayed that it would not rain. And indeed, it did not rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed that it would rain, and God sent rain. He was known more than anything else as a man of immense prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but I, prayer can be a very difficult thing. I mean, it seems so easy until you try to spend a lot of time doing it. It can be a very difficult thing. And I, I wonder sometimes, you know, do we just go through the motions when we pray? I mean, what kind of prayer life do we have as individuals? What kind of life, prayer life did he have? It said he was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was just like us, meaning he was susceptible to the same trials, the same temptations, all, the same uh, limitations of his humanity. And yet he still prayed. I mean, this man was known as a heavy-duty prayer. Heavy-duty. What comes to your mind when you hear the word heavy-duty? I mean, we have heavy duty in a lot of our, our, you know, our language today. I mean, whether it's Ford Tough, you know, Chevy runs deep. We want power tools that are just, you know, they're heavy duty. I mean, even my son, I mean, I have two girls and a boy. And my boy, who's named Elijah, he's all boy. And he doesn't talk, he grunts. <laughs> it's like Tim Allen is a child, you know. <laughs> I mean, he really is. And he, but he wants to play, and, and I realize that the toys the girls played with aren't sufficient. He needs heavy-duty toys. There's a reason why little boys play with Tonka. I mean, just the word Tonka. And he, we have these heavy-duty things, and we have heavy-duty things everywhere we go. We have heavy-duty uh, garbage bags, right? Remember that commercial? Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Remember that? In the commercial, hefty, 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 you know. We need to have these heavy things. We need, we need heavy-duty things that can last, that can endure, that are powerful, that are stronger than even normal. And, you know, that's what Elijah had. He had a heavy-duty prayer life. He did not have a wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. I mean, it was hefty, hefty, hefty. I mean, this guy had, he called on the name of the Lord, and God sent fire. Now, what amazes me is I look at James chapter 5, and I look at Elijah when the fire comes down from heaven, and it says that he was in, had a nature just like ours. And then I ask myself the question, and I dare to ask myself the question, can we pray like Elijah? Can we? I mean, think about it. The Bible dares to say that God will listen to our requests. It's an amazing tool. I mean, it's a, it's a weapon of mass destruction. Paul says that we have, we have weapons of our warfare that can demolish strongholds. Strongholds. It's not about military fight. I, I was reading today in the Psalms, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Or as Pastor Andrew was referring to a few weeks back to, to John Knox or Bloody Mary, she says, I don't fear any armies, but I, I fear the the prayers of John Knox. I mean, what kind of prayer life do you have? What kind of prayer life do we have? And we dare ask ourselves the question, then, how can I have a prayer life 
like Elijah? I mean, what do I need to do? What does it involve? Well, today I hope that we can jump into our text and we can see and extract some of these principles as we examine this text to see what God has for us, that God desires us to be men and women of prayer. Whether you are a novice in prayer or whether you've been praying for years, I hope that this might encourage you to go deeper, might encourage us all to go deeper, to take God at His word and what He has revealed to us, how we can pray and commune with God. I mean, it's not just communing with anyone. It's communing with Almighty God. I mean, that's an amazing thing to think about. It's a sober reality. And it's a a weapon that we have that we don't take advantage of. Now, I hope today that as we look at Elijah's life, that God might break our hearts to show us how we might be men and women of prayer. So let's look at our text. 1 Kings chapter 18, reading from verse 41 through 46. It is our custom here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the honor of reading God's Word. So please stand with me. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. May God bless the reading and understanding of his word. You may be seated. Elijah. Remember what had just happened. There had been a famine in the land for three and a half years. Elijah said it wouldn't rain except at his word. And then he has a showdown with the prophets of Baal, the false god that the Israelites had turned to worship. And God had answered by fire. Remember, he'd set the the terms of the contest. He'd laid it down. He prepared a sacrifice. They prepared a sacrifice. And he said, the God who answers by fire is God. And that's exactly what happened. The prophets of Baal had prepared their sacrifice. They'd called in the name of their God. They started to cut themselves and pierce themselves. And there there was no answer. Nothing. And then Elijah prepared the sacrifice, if you remember. And then he he cuts the bull. And then he prays to the Lord. Lord, please show that you are turning the, the hearts of your people back to yourself. And then fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice. And then we know that the, the pro, pri, priests of, of Baal were slaughtered. And now we come to the next passage. We see him pray. We see him as an example of someone with a heavy-duty prayer life. And what I'd like us to do today is see this heavy-duty prayer life involves a different kind of perspective. That's the first thing that I want us to notice as we go through this passage piece by piece. Let's look at the passage together, shall we? Verse 41, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. Now Ahab, all he's concerned about is filling his stomach and having his tongue feel good. That's it. He just wanted to satisfy his thirst and his food. And he says to him, Hey, go up and eat and drink. 
I'm surprised Elijah said, you should be dead for what you've done. But he says, no, go up and eat a drink. And that his, but what does Elijah do? Look what he does right after he tells him to go up and eat a drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down, I'm in verse 42, on the earth and put his face between his knees. What did he do? He prays. He goes and prays. Ahab goes and eats some food, but Elijah, Elijah goes and prays. Such is the concern and preoccupation of his heart. Now, how, how can we gain this prayer life? How can we have this perspective? Well, to gain this perspective involves a greater concern for spiritual things. How is your appetite for spiritual things? Let me ask you that. How is your appetite for spiritual things? John Piper, I, I, I love him, uh, and one of the things that he said was, some of us have no concern for the things of God. We can't sit at the table of God and eat because we are so busy eating the white bread of the world. That when we sit down and try to eat the things of God, we can't. We don't have the appetite for us because we are too busy stuffing ourselves with the things of the world. But see, Ahab, that's what he's doing. He's, in essence, showing that out physically. But Elijah's going and he goes to pray. He has a greater concern for spiritual things. How about us? Where does our concern lie? Do we have a greater concern for the spiritual things, what the, the Spirit is teaching us to see individuals saved, to grow in holiness, to see God's name glorified above all things? See, the, the Christian life is not about how to just make yourself happy and have five ways to manage your time. It's about the glory of God. It's about the name of Jesus Christ being magnified within us. That's what it's about. It's about the crucified Savior that died on the cross for us. The cross is central to our understanding. It is all about Jesus. And, and it's through Him. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. By the word of His power, He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the firstborn from the dead, our high priest. He is our intercessor. He is all of these different things that we might draw closer to Him and His name might be magnified within us. Elijah, that's all he cared about was the name of God being magnified in his life. That's what he wanted to see have happen. He had a greater concern for spiritual things. But we, we see as we look at our text, he, he goes up, he gets down on his knees, and puts, he gets down, bowed himself on the earth, and put his face between his knees. He cared about what God was going to do. He cared about the rain coming. See, the rain hadn't come yet. See, that's the amazing thing we don't, we don't realize is that we just keep thinking, wow, that fire was hot. I mean, that fire was bright. And, I mean, can you imagine there being there that day? The fire just... That had been amazing. But absolutely phenomenal. And then to see people's faces as they had smoke on their faces. Just falling down, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And even after the 450 prophets have been slaughtered, because it was death to you know, be idolatrous in ancient Israel. What happened next? <clears throat> Did the rain come yet? Had the famine ended? No. It hadn't. So Elijah gets down on his knees and prays. Why? Why? I asked myself that question. Why? I mean, he didn't glory in the, in the victory, walking around, strutting, going... In the face! You know, he didn't do that. That's not what he did. He gets down on his knees and he prays. Why? Because he had a greater concern for spiritual things. Not only that, but he had a deeper desire to see God work. 
He wanted to see God work. You know, that's the hunger. That's, I'm going to be very honest. That's a, that's a prayer of my heart. I want to see God work. I want to see God change lives. I want to hear about marriages being restored. I want to hear about prodigals coming home. I want to hear about drug addicts being cleaned up, alcoholics being made straight. I want to hear about the prostitute being made a singer or play in church. I want to hear these stories of God's grace being magnified in our midst. And you know, God does those. He still does it. He's in the, still in the miracle business. He's in the business of changing hearts and lives today, drawing people out of false, idolatrous religions, calling them to Himself no matter where they are, what they've done, how much knowledge they have. <clears throat> he's still in that business. But you know, he, he not only has ordained the means, He knows the end result, but, I mean, ordained the results, but He's also ordained the means. Which means that He's ordained the, the, through our prayers that a lot of this is going to be accomplished. <clears throat> he wants us to be people, men and women of prayer. Deeper to see God work, he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He cared more about seeing God work than anything else. I'm reminded of Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission. The stories of him are legendary. When he got older, was traveling all over China preaching, he would be staying in different places. He'd be exhausted from preaching all day. And even at like two in the morning, they said there he would be right in front of his candle, kneeling in front of his Bible in prayer. Just and, and uh, the guiding precept, as has been said, of his ministry was to move man through God by prayer alone. As Paul even says, it's not through the words of man's wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power, but it's through the power of God being shown up in an individual's life. The kingdom of God is not in eating or drinking, but in the power of God. And the power of God only becomes available to us when we are on our knees asking for him to work and show himself. God doesn't go where he's not wanted. I mean, God is in the business of opening churches and closing churches. I've heard many different people say, oh, we love the Lord, but that they refuse to reach the lost or pray and seek His face. God will close that church. Look at the book of Revelation as He speaks to the seven churches. He says, I have the ability to open them and I have the power to close them. Elijah had a desire to see God work and he prayed that way. He knew the truth of Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, when he said, prayer is a powerful thing, for God has bound and tied himself thereto. God has bound himself to prayer, meaning that God has says, you can call this number, and I will answer. I will answer the request. I will listen to you, but we don't believe that. It's like saying to you, I could have you the phone, and I, you could call the President of the United States, and you'd say, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to do that. And then you'd call, and you'd say, this isn't you. I have a lot of things to say to you, Mr. Obama. And then you find out that it's really the President of the United States. What do you do then? What do you do? I mean, think about that. Instead of him, we don't have just a, a line to the President of the United States. We have a, a, a line to Almighty God. Almighty God. I'm reminded of the story, <clears throat> kind of tongue-in-cheek, of a woman when she was in college, and she had her sights set on a young man. And she walked up to the young man and she goes, God told me this morning that you're going to be my husband. And he said, funny, I talked to God myself and he didn't say a thing. <laughs> I mean, God is able to speak to us. We have God Almighty, Almighty God, but he speaks to his people, not just one. But he speaks to his people. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing tool. And Elijah used it. 
He had a deeper desire to see God work. We need prayer. That's the fact of the matter. We're like dolphins in the ocean. Dolphins have to come up and get air and then go back down. For us, we have to go up and lift our voices to God. And then after that, we go back into the world. But we always have to keep coming up for air to pray for the Lord. But he had a deeper desire to see God work. We need prayer. We, God has ordained prayer to be used for His glory. I'm amazed at one man's story. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man by the name of John Hyde. One of my favorite men to ever read about. He was known as Praying Hyde. He was a missionary to India. He lived from 1865 from 1912. He was from Illinois. Actually, he's buried only a couple hours from here. But his stories of his prayer life are legendary. Dr. Wilbur Chapman tells, wrote to a friend about his encounter with John Praying Hyde. He said, I have learned some great lessons concerning prayer. At one of our missions in England, the audiences were exceedingly small. But I received a note saying that an American missionary was going to pray God's blessing down upon our work. He was known as Praying Hyde. Almost instantly, the tide turned. The hall became packed. And at my first invitation, 15 men accepted Christ as their Savior. As, we're leaving, as we were leaving, I said, Mr. Hyde, I want you to pray for me. He came to my room, turned the key in the door, and dropped on his knees and waited five minutes without a single syllable coming from his lips. I could hear my own heart thumping and beating. I felt the hot tears running down my face. I knew I was with God. Then with upturned face, down which, which the tears were streaming, he said, Oh God! And then for five minutes at least he was still again. And then when he knew that he was talking with God, there came up from the depth of his heart such petitions from men as I had never known before. I rose from my knees to know what real prayer was. That's amazing to see God working. God works through His people that care for a deeper work of God. And I ask ourselves the question, are we, do we care for the deep work of God? Are we men and women on our knees? It's often been said, you can tell how popular the preacher is on Sunday mornings, but you can tell how popular God is at the prayer meeting. It's true, unfortunately. I remember my, first, my last church that I was at, it was a church that had gone had terrible, terribly bad history. And our prayer was that we would go to a place where only God could receive glory. We went to this church where the average age was 62. The average length of membership was 38 years. They'd fired their previous two pastors. They were getting ready to close the doors. They had enough money to survive for the next two years. That was all. I mean, we were the youngest in there by decades. And they asked, ourselves the, they asked me the question as I was going through the interview process, can, can God revive this church? I was like, that's a dumb question. I said, if God could take a 90-year-old woman and have her give birth to a newborn, He can do whatever He wants. And I said, but He won't do that unless we pray. So we called an all-night prayer meeting, several of them, starting on a Friday night. We just came in here, we had pray, prayer. People came and prayed and prayed and prayed, and we continued to pray, and we had our prayer meetings focused. We, we would pray on Wednesday afternoons. I mean, many, we had a lot of older people, and we had, it was a meeting at 7 o'clock on Sunday nights originally, but they were getting older, and they couldn't drive, so we moved it to 1.30. And these people came in, and they prayed faithfully week after week, and then the church started to grow. We had 35 people when we were there, and it started to grow. When we left, it was 80. And then right after us, it, it boom, 150. Their, their doors are busted in New England. That's a very large church. 
But God did that because of His people praying. It was not because of me. I left when it grew. Don't don't think about that. (laughs) But it was about God. That's what it was about. It was not about me. It was not about the next guy. It was about God being glorified above all things. Do we care about that? Do we want to see the lost reached in our area? Do you want to see lives turn around? Do you want to see your family come to know Jesus? Let me ask you the question. Are you praying for them? And it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It takes years. My mentor said that prayer is like a time bomb. You never know when it's going to go off. You never know when that last prayer is going to bring their heart and transform it. I think of the Metrodome in Minneapolis. Remember that? When, I don't know if you saw that over this past winter. They received so much snowfall that the roof collapsed. This big, beautiful facility that thousands of people go to. And I'm sure when they saw just a little bit of snow, it didn't make any deal. But the more snow that came, each snowflake kept adding to the total, adding to the total, adding to the total, and then it just busted. That's how it is with prayer. The more that we continue to pray, the more that continues to grow. And then God takes over and transforms a life. He had a deeper desire to see God work. Now let's continue on. Look at verse 42 with me. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. I want you to notice now, we looked at his perspective. Look at his posture. He gets down and puts his head between his knees. Scripture describes several different body positions in prayer, from hands lifted up and eyes open to lying prostrate on the ground. But his, his posture indicates that he was approaching God humbly. When's the last time you got down on your knees in prayer? Just humbled yourself before the Lord. Said, God, I I can't do this myself. Kneeling down. I mean, I think of the tax collector who would, he wouldn't come close to God in prayer. All he kept saying was, I mean, not the tax collector, but the Pharisee raised his hands and he he kept saying how great he was. But it was the man who was the tax collector, beat his breast and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. So humble he was. He understood who he was and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says he went home justified in the sight of God. He knew his state. He knew he was dependent entirely upon the Lord. And that's what Elijah did too. He humbled himself. Now some people say, hell, and and in some of your texts you might have a little note that says he was tired. Because if you actually notice, in this text, it never mentions the word prayer. Never mentions the word prayer. It never says that he prayed. Pretty interesting. My small group noticed that. They said it just says that he could be tired. He just lays down. He's exhausted. I would say, look at James chapter 5. What does James chapter 5 say? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed. So here he's praying that it wouldn't, he prayed initially that it wouldn't rain, and now he's saying it's going to rain. He's in prayer, folks. He's in prayer. He came to the Lord humbly. Now, we also see that he came to the Lord humbly, but he didn't hesitate, he didn't wait around. He didn't have any difficulty. He didn't stop and do anything else. He didn't let anything hinder him. Let nothing hinder you in prayer. Let nothing hinder you. What are the things that hinder you in prayer? When you get down on your knees or when you spend time in prayer, what is it that hinders you? Let me ask you that question. What is it? Does your cell phone go off? Do you start thinking of your grocery list? Does your mind just wander? Do you fall asleep? What are the things that hinder you? Or you, maybe you need to find a place. Do you have a regular routine of prayer? Do you have a place that you go? I mean, do you have a closet? 
Do you have close your, the door of your bedroom? I mean, Jesus says, go into your room and close the door behind you so your father in secret, it's, it's secret. Your father in secret will hear you and will reward you. So it's a secret place. I know when I was in college, I used, you can't get away in a dorm room. But we had these prayer closets. I would just lock the door and spend my time in there in prayer. It was kind of funny because everybody always knew when I'd been in prayer because the whole floor was fogged up. All the steam coming from the shower. But where do you spend time in prayer? Maybe you don't have a place to go. Maybe you're, you're a mom with a lot of children going around saying, I could stop and pray, but my children would die. I've heard some mothers say that. But I think of Susanna Wesley. Well, who she, had, she had several children. And what did she do? She put her apron over her head and spent that time in prayer. And the kids knew, don't, mess, don't talk to mom when she has her apron over her head. She's communing with the Lord. She's the father of John Charles Wesley, the fathers of the Methodist movement. It doesn't have to always be, I mean, if you can't get that far away, if your work, just, just take that time to pray. Maybe it's in your cubicle at work. Find that place. Let nothing hinder you. But take Jesus' admonition. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Susanna Wesley had 19 children and she still managed to have time to pray. I think we can too. Find a time, turn off the cell phone, close the computer and get alone with God. Next, I'd like to look at Elijah's petition. <clears throat> petition. We don't know the exact words of his prayer, but we do know that he prayed for rain. James is very clear. James 5, 17 through 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He prayed in faith. That's what it means. In his petition, we see that he prayed in faith. Before... Uh, he talked about Elijah. James had talked about the prayer of faith and uses Elijah as an example. It means expectantly believing God is going to answer, as Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says. Without faith, it is, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So what does it mean to pray in faith? Here's what it means. Number one, praying expectantly. <clears throat> praying expectantly. Look at verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there's the sound of rushing rain. Where was the rain? I mean, when he goes and kneels down, <coughs> I mean, unless he has supersonic hearing, I mean, he sees it way off in the distance, and it takes some time before that. He is totally praying in faith. <coughs> he says that there's the sound of rushing rain. Or even in verse 44, after the servant comes back, he says, Go up to Ahab, prepare your chariot, and go down, lest the rain stop you. There was only a cloud the size of a man's hand. I mean, this man was praying in faith. He was praying expectantly. <coughs> Martin Luther was known to have a dynamic prayer life, taking up to two hours in prayer each morning. One person, upon hearing him pray, said this, Whilst I was listening to Luther pray in this manner at a distance, my soul seemed on fire within me to hear the man address God so like a friend, yet with, with so much gravity and reverence. And also to hear him in the course of his prayer, insisting on the promises contained in the Psalms, as if he were sure his petitions would be granted. I mean, that's pretty amazing. He were sure his petitions would be granted. I mean, do we have that type of faith? I'd like to go back with something I talked with a little bit last week. I talked about uh, Blaise Pascal. I don't know if you remember that. The, the famous French mathematician and philosopher who 
who believed that God gave us prayer as the gift of divine causality. Thank you very much. Causality. That God would answer the, requ- the requests of His people. C.S. Lewis described it as being at, at a dinner table with God. And he said, God passed the salt. He said, would God not have passed the salt if I didn't ask Him? No, He would. Just He goes, would you pass the salt if I didn't ask you? It's only because I ask you that you answer. And God said He will grant our request. And we learned last week that whatever is on the table is the will of God. Some of us say we're eating salad, but we want dessert, but it's not the right time yet. It's not on the table yet. Maybe that's to come. It'll come soon, but it's not God's timing yet. James says that we, we pray, when we pray, we don't receive because we ask with wrong motives, because we do it to spend it on our worldly passions. So are we praying expectantly, asking God to work? Do we expect Him to answer? Then we wonder, if we ask ourselves the question, why doesn't He answer? Have you ever asked yourself the question of that? And Pastor Andrew put together a great little thing. It had ten reasons why God doesn't answer prayer. A lot of it has to do with our own disobedience. Because we're not concerned with others. Someone, I was trying to illustrate this to someone recently, and I, I looked at it this way, and we have a lot of football fans here. It's like being on the football field and you're a receiver. God's the quarterback. And some of us are saying, why doesn't God answer? As a receiver, He only answers, He only will throw it to you if you stay on the field to play. If you go out of bounds, you can wave your hands, you can be all earnest as you want, you can shout, you can plead, you can kick. But the fact is, you're not in the field of obedience. If you're in the field of obedience, God will answer. But if we're not in the field of obedience, He's not going to answer. We have to be running according, the plays according to His word. And when we are, He'll answer. We have to go according to His his will, His word, so that He might receive worship. Now remember, God had already promised that it would rain if God's people turned to Him. Elijah was simply praying according to the promises of God. Now this is something that gets overlooked in Elijah's life. What I mean is this. This was prophesied. Did you know that? This drought had been prophesied. It had been prophesied. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16 through 17, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15 and verse 24, and 1 Kings. Matter of fact, we can hear Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 35 through 36. He says this, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name, and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you reach them the good way in which they should walk, and grant them rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. So they prayed according to the promises of God. Do we pray according to the promises of God and His Word? God has laid out His these promises in His Word that He will answer them. He promised them. God doesn't, He's not slack in fulfilling His promises. He will always fulfill His promises. God cannot fail. He cannot fail. He delights in His servants coming to Him in faith. The thing is, is most of us have a safe faith. <clears throat> We don't take great risks for the kingdom of God because we're, we're so fearful of what's going to happen. We're afraid that God won't answer and then we won't understand why and we'll have a lack of faith. Then and we'll, it'll, God will be diminished in our sight, but then we have to go back and evaluate. Is it the right timing? Are we praying to the, according to the will of God? Are we praying according to the word of God? Am I asking it in the wrong motives with my own selfish desires? Am I, am I neglecting some other area of my life? 
We have to ask ourselves those questions. Praying according to the promises of God of laid out within the Word of God. God delights in glorifying His name and delights in answering promises that are laid at His feet. Elijah didn't hesitate, but he also came to God without fear. It's amazing to me that we can go into the presence of Almighty God. We don't deserve it, but God let us come into His presence because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Now, you've got to remember that Elijah was before the time of Christ, but now, through Christ, we can have access. We can enter the throne room of God boldly. We think of Queen Esther. Remember the story of Queen Esther? What would happen to Queen Esther if she came to the king's presence without being summoned? She'd be killed. Unless the king extended his scepter. And then she would be fine. See, God has extended his scepter to us because of Jesus. We can only enter into the presence of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because he is our high priest. When the veil was torn on Good Friday, we understand that it was Christ through his flesh. That's the reason why. Because Christ entered into the holy of holies. And through our faith in him, we can enter into the presence of Almighty God. Before we couldn't do that. Not boldly. Matter of fact, it's been said of Martin Luther that when he prayed, he would confess his sins and he would, had such self-humiliation, he understood how bad he was that he said you pitied him when you heard his prayer. But then he made such great petitions and such bold claim on God's promises that you feared for him. I hope I have that kind of prayer life. I want to have that kind of prayer life. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God delights in us coming to Him in prayer. Elijah understood that. He understood that the weapon of his warfare was not the flesh, but he knew that it was of the Spirit and had divine power to destroy strongholds. For Elijah, prayer was his walkie-talkie. You know, Corey Tenboom once said that, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Pretty good way of looking at it. For Elijah, it was his walkie-talkie on the battlefield of life. John Piper describes it this way. Prayer is the walkie-talkie on the battlefield of the world. It calls on God for courage, Ephesians 6.19. It calls in for troop deployment and target location, Acts 13.1-3. It calls in for protection and air cover, Matthew 6.13, Luke 21-36. It calls in for firepower to blast open a way for the word, Colossians 4.3. It calls in for the miracles of the healing for the wounded soldiers, James 5.16. It calls in for supplies for the forces, Matthew 6.11, Philippians 4.6. And it calls in the needed reinforcements, Matthew 9.38. This is the place of prayer on the battlefield of the world. It is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. And one of the reasons it malfunctions in the hands of so many Christian soldiers is that they have gone AWOL. We can pray without fear, but we can see there's also more. Look at verse 43 with me. And he said to his servant, Go up now. Look toward the sea. So he's on the top of Mount Carmel. His servant's up there with him. They'd already seen the the slaughter of the 450 prophets of Baal. And it says that the, the, the servant went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. He prayed seven times and waited for a sign. Seven times. 
In other words, he persevered. We gain a, if we, in order to gain a prayer life like him, we, or we can if we practice perseverance. Now, what does that mean? This perseverance here involves a dogged determination. I mean, he was determined. After every time that servant came to him, and he goes, go again, go again. I'm not giving up, go again. I think of Jacob who was wrestling with God in prayer. He wouldn't let go. He said, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to let go. I mean, how quickly do we give up? Well, God didn't answer my prayer. I mean, seven times is not just literal seven times. I mean, for us, it's an example of persistence. I even think of the widow and the unjust judge. The widow can come, continues to worry this unjust judge day and night, day and night. And he says, I don't fear God, nor do I fear men. I don't care about this woman's cause. But she's wearing me out. And I'm going to answer her request because of that. And then Jesus says, will not God, will not God grant justice to his elect to call out to him day and night? Or to him who asks? God delights in giving good gifts to his children. He delights in answering our request. I mean, he had a dogged determination. He wanted to see God at work because prayer is like a time bomb. We never know when that last prayer is going to change everything. I read this some time ago, but I, I believe it bears repeating today. In the book Point Man, Steve Farrar tells the story of George McCluskey. George McCluskey married and started a family. He decided to invest one hour a day in prayer because he wanted his kids to follow a Christ, to follow Christ. After a while, he expanded his prayers to include his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Every day between 11 and noon, he prayed for the next three generations. <clears throat> As the years went by, his two daughters committed their lives to Christ, married men, went into full-time ministry. The two couples produced four girls and one boy. Each of the girls married a minister, and the boy became a pastor. The first two children born to this generation were both boys. Upon graduation from high school, the two cousins chose the same college and became roommates. During their sophomore year, one boy decided to go into the ministry, the other didn't. He undoubtedly felt some pressure to continue the family legacy, but he chose instead to pursue his interest in psychology. He earned his doctorate and eventually wrote books for parents that became bestsellers. He started a radio program heard on more than a thousand stations each day. The man's name? James Dobson. Just illustrating again the power of persevering prayer, of praying for our family, praying for God to work. But notice, there was more to Elijah's prayer. Look back at verse 43 with me. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. Now notice the words there, there is nothing. Imagine hearing that over and over again. After everything you've gone through. You're exhausted. You have, I mean, you have been by the, the brook at Cherith. You'd gone to the widow at Zarephath. I mean, God had sustained you with food from ravens, water from a brook. He used the widow to sustain you through flour and oil. And then you saw a dead child come back to life through your ministry. And then you saw the fire of God fall down from heaven. And now you're praying and there's nothing. Where are you, God? Where are you? Where are you? Every time. I, I can't imagine what it was like. I mean, I have enough problems hearing there is nothing after we do one thing and, oh, there's no fruit, there's no fruit, and we get discouraged and quit. But he keeps going back. He keeps sending him back. The servant returns. There is nothing. Go back. There is nothing. Go back. 
There is nothing. Go back. There is nothing. Go back. God has promised. There is nothing. Go back. God has promised. Go back. God has promised. Go back. God has promised. I can just see almost the tears welling up in his eyes. God has promised. He has promised. I'm clinging to that promise. I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to let go. See, he discarded all disappointment. He said, I'm not going to let go. I don't care what everybody else says. I don't care what the reports of man are. I don't care what flesh says. I am not going to let go. I'm not going to let go just like Jacob until you bless me. Are we that dogged, have that dogged determination to see God glorified within us? To see God answer prayer? Do we pray like that? Or do we just give up after one or two times? Hold on to the promises of God. Don't let go. No matter what may come. Though heaven and earth may pass away, His word will never pass away. God has bound Himself to the promises that are found within His word. God cannot fail. He cannot fail. And He will not fail. Discarded all disappointments. Now what happens? We know what happens. Look at verse 44. And at the same time, He said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising up from the sea. Oh, I wonder what he felt then. I wonder what he thought when that came up and he saw that little cloud. I'm sure those tears just turned to joy. And he says, he says, tell Ahab, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, go down, lest the rain stop you. Storm's coming. There's a storm coming. I mean, he's God's weatherman. We have the forecast and it's a chance of, you know, thunderstorm go up ahab it's going to be a flood go up ahab it's going to be a flood and ahab and in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind i'm sure more people delighted in seeing those clouds go dark than ever before like farmers just waiting when they see the sky and they see their crops all dried up i mean it'd been three and a half years they hadn't seen a cloud a rain cloud in the sky and i'm sure everybody was celebrating running outside dancing in the rain just feeling the raindrops on their face, knowing that they, God had returned His blessing on His people. God had answered. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. That was their summer home, their summer palace. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. We don't know why God had him do that. I mean, why God had him run so supernaturally fast. The text doesn't tell us. Anything that we would look at would only simply be a guess. So it's better to leave that in the mind of God, to best continue to study ourselves, to show ourselves approved unto God, but to focus on the real point and focus of the text, and that's the prayer of Elijah. To look what Elijah had done. Actually, not what Elijah had done, but what God had done through Elijah. We don't know why God sent Elijah down to race in front of, on in front of Ahab to Jezreel. He must have had another assignment, but whatever the case, God gave him the supernatural ability to beat a chariot. What we need to take home from this passage is what is completely obvious. Prayer is powerful because God is powerful. And God has bound Himself through it. No matter what we go through, we can pray about it and God is ready to listen, provided we stay on the field of obedience, running the plays He has called for us through His Word. And when we do that, He is more than willing and able to give good gifts to His children. And then fulfill the promise of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20-21. through 21. 
that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to His power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So let me conclude with this. How's your prayer life? Is it a wimpy, wimpy prayer life? Or is it hefty, hefty? God can make even the weakest prayer into a heavy-duty prayer. Simply means coming to Him in faith, abandoning all our worldly knowledge and looking entirely to the Word of God and what God has laid forth and bound Himself to in His Word. Don't give up in prayer. Don't give up in praying for that spouse who's unsaved. Don't give up in praying for your prodigal child, your prodigal niece or nephew. Don't give up in praying for your coworker, maybe a parent, maybe an aunt and uncle, a relative, or a good friend. Don't give up in prayer for that. Continue to pray and assault the throne of grace with requests. God can handle it. He doesn't have a problem with it. God is never, never, you never be put on, uh, on, on, on hold. And His line is never busy. He's always ready and willing to answer us when we pray to Him so that He might receive glory. So I would encourage you, spend more time in prayer. Take some time this week, even today, get down on your knees and commune before the Lord. Maybe pray with your spouse. Pray with your children. Pray with your grandchildren. And begin to pray for them. Establish that legacy now. You don't have to have a great name. You don't have to have a great training. You don't have to have a great knowledge. All you have to do is have simple faith. That's it. Anybody can pray. Anybody. Anybody that loves Christ and is following His Word, God will answer when He or she calls to Him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so delighted that you work through Elijah, a man like us. Lord, help us to have heavy-duty prayer lives. Lord, we want to come before you, asking you to work within our midst. We know that you are the God who could do more than we could ever ask or imagine. Lord, how great is that? Lord, help us to look at you with eyes of faith, to, to pray for your work in our midst. Lord, we want to see people saved. We want to see lives transformed. People come to the end of their sin and say, Save me. I need a Savior. Lord, we pray that you work in our midst, that you might receive glory, not only in our church, but in our community. We ask you to transform our community. We ask you to transform AU. Let a revival go on there. Let a revival go on in our midst. Lord, help us to be men and women of the Word of God and prayer. Help us to see you with new eyes, coming before you in total faith, knowing that you will ask, you will answer the request that we lay before your feet. Not for our glory, not for our own sinful desires, so that you might receive glory and your name might be magnified in our midst. Lord, you are the Lord of glory. Glorify yourself in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.